If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. The ushers will distribute them. Today's passage is on page 699, if that helps. The passage is Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 21, going through verse 39. It starts with a mother's desperate pursuit of Jesus. Um, Yes, please stand for the reading of the word. I'm standing. You can too. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the preaching, and the living out of God's word. You may be seated. How's it going, family? Uh, Let's pray. 
Father, uh, we come to sing your praises today, and around us there is a broken world full of curses and difficulties, and we wonder how to connect the two realities, the promises that we have from you, and the hard and many, many difficult aspects of this life. Father, I pray now that you would empower me and us to understand better how to connect those two, how to connect your promises, how to connect who you are to the world in which we live. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So you probably weren't expecting uh, to be hearing me talk about a Christmas song in August, Uh, but I wanted to throw out the lyric of a song and see how many of you can guess uh, which Christmas song it comes from. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Now answer, what song is that from? Joy to the world. Okay, joy to the world. The context of that particular lyric is no more let sin nor sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. So what is that saying? Uh, In essence, it's basically saying wherever Jesus comes uh, and there's brokenness, he comes to restore it. Where there's pain, he comes to bring healing Where there is sorrow, he comes to bring cheer. Where there is loneliness, Jesus comes to befriend. Where there is need, Jesus comes to provide. Now, uh, that's awesome that we sing that at Christmas time, or you know, if you listen to certain radio stations sometime mid-October, we we sing that song and we 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 kind of get what it's saying. uh, But is it is it true? Is it, is it really true? Um, because Jesus came 2,000 years ago, right? And uh, there seem to be a lot of curses still. There seem to be a lot of difficulties in this world and in this life. Uh, so I put that question before you now uh, with the anticipation that today I will bring you great cheer. Uh, as uh, we often do around the holidays, today I want to bring you great cheer by telling you that indeed Jesus does come to bring blessings wherever the curse is found. And I'm going to talk about what that means, and particularly the way that the sermon is going to be structured today. I'm going to show you three curses that Jesus comes to break. But then I'm also going to show you that Jesus breaks the curse behind all curses. Jesus actually came to break the curse behind all curses. Now, uh, read with me again, starting at verse 21 in Matthew 15. I'm just going to read it really fast because we've already had a good reading of the text And Jesus went from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre in Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. 
and her daughter was healed instantly. The first curse that Jesus overturns is exclusion. Exclusion, and he brings the blessing of embrace. Jesus breaks the curse of exclusion and brings the blessing of embrace. Now, let's follow this narrative. Jesus basically uh, had a guy that went before him, right? John the Baptist, who was telling everybody, Jesus is coming, he's the man, worship him. And uh, John the Baptist, a few chapters earlier, got beheaded. He was done. And uh, a lot of people are getting really angry, getting upset at what Jesus is teaching. They're getting a little scared, getting a little nervous, and they're like, let's threaten this guy, let's, let's get rid of him, let's end this guy. Jesus realizes, okay, I don't have much time left if this keeps happening and my disciples are in danger. Let's head north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. The regions of Tyre and Sidon were less Jewish than the area that Jesus spent most of his ministry in. Uh, Jesus spent most of his public ministry in the area of Galilee, focusing on the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham. Jesus was focused on that particular group. But to flee from danger at this particular time, Jesus goes north to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and there are a lot of Canaanites and Gentile folk in that particular area. And so what happens is Jesus is walking along with, with his disciples, and all of a sudden this woman throws herself in front of Jesus. She throws herself in front of Jesus, and well, uh, she basically says to him, Jesus, you know, and, and to the disciples, heal my daughter, heal my daughter. Now what's interesting is uh, pretty much every single uh, ethnic group at that time, the Canaanites included, had deities that they thought would protect them and do the things that they needed. And there was actually a Canaanite deity for healing in that area. And what this woman did was she actually bypassed that healing God that she thought wouldn't do anything for her. And she went straight to this man, Jesus, that she had heard about. And she calls him son of David. She calls him son of David. Now that could mean one of two things. She could either be recognizing, hey, I know you're of Jewish lineage. I know that you come from the greatest king of Israel ever, David. She could, be ce- she could be celebrating that, recognizing that. Or she could even be acknowledging the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited-for king that would put an end to all of Israel's troubles. She may have recognized that. We don't really know from the text what she recognized. Suffice it to say, she comes before Jesus, and she's saying, Have mercy on, on me, O Lord, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now this is what gets interesting. Jesus, instead of acknowledging that she even said anything, keeps walking. He just keeps walking. And evidently she's being persistent and the disciples are saying, send her away. Send her away. And Jesus replies to them, I have not come to, I have not come but to the lost house of Israel, to the sheep of Israel. And Jesus is recognizing before his disciples, this is not my mission This is not what I'm focused on. That's what the disciples are saying. And if you look at the text, you think, well, are the disciples saying just get rid of this woman? No, actually they're not, and this is why. Uh, Jesus says, this is not my mission. This is not my focus. The disciples are basically saying to Jesus, Jesus, you know what you can do. You can heal this, this woman's daughter, and you can send her away. Just do the miracle and get rid of her. Do the miracle and get rid of her. We don't want to have anything to do with this Canaanite woman. She's bothering us. She's annoying us. Heal her daughter, and let's keep her away from us. Let's keep her excluded. Jesus isn't about that. He's saying, this isn't my mission. And what what the woman does is even more powerfully comes before Jesus and says, please, Jesus, I need help. I need help. And Jesus does something very interesting. And he looks at her and says, 
it's not good to take the bread from the children and give it, give it to the dogs. And uh, I'm going to talk about that particular statement in just a second. But what's phenomenal is the woman's reply is, but yes, even the dogs take crumbs from the children's table. And Jesus, amazed at this woman's faith, says, great is your faith. That, in, just in case you don't know, in Jesus' uh, language, that's like awesome, unbelievable. Uh, I haven't seen this yet. People don't come to me like this. They don't quite understand what you understand. Jesus celebrates this woman's faith. She is celebrated. She goes from being uh, a nobody in the disciples' mind to being in Jesus' kingdom. It's what is celebrated, what is good. In Jesus' kingdom, this Canaanite woman is celebrated. She is a representation of all that Jesus prizes and finds worthy and valuable. Jesus did this. He teased out that faith, and he celebrated it for this woman. And it was awesome in Jesus' eyes. Jesus was celebrating her. And what Jesus was showing us, formerly, he had said in chapter 10 to his disciples, go only to the house of Israel. Don't, don't go to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans. Go only to the house of Israel. Take this message of the gospel of the kingdom only to the house of Israel. But this, this particular passage shows us that this, there's a shift going on in Jesus' mission Jesus' mission is no longer eventually, and as we find out in Matthew 28, when he tells his disciples to make disciples of Jesus Christ of all nations, it's going away from being just a nationalistic religion, uh, Christianity, to being a worldwide phenomenon. Jesus is saying, we're going to go, we're taking this, this good news to everyone. Jesus has replaced exclusion with embrace. What was formerly excluded from the house of Israel, at least in many people's minds, what people thought was, we don't, we don't deal with ethnic differences. Uh, Jesus was saying, yes, we do. Uh, this, this gospel of the kingdom is going across ethnic boundaries. Now, I've got to confess something to you all. Uh, this particular passage has often been one of the most troubling passages for me in all of the gospels, if not the most troubling for me. And uh, you believe, you're like, is a pastor supposed to say that? Um, that I'm troubled by a particular passage, uh, I'm acknowledging before you right now that often when I've come to this particular passage, it's, it's been hard, and I'm going to tell you why I feel like it's a grace that I get to preach it to you today, because I got a chance to investigate and, and understand more of what's going on with Jesus, because we all understand this, right? Jesus, we, we, we claim this, he's perfect, he's good, and it doesn't seem like Jesus would make a demeaning comment, right? He, I mean, it looks like he's calling a woman a dog. And I'm like, what? This, this, this isn't the Jesus I understand. Uh, this isn't what I grew up with. Um, I don't understand this Jesus. So I started to look at it and investigate a little bit more. What's going on here? Why would Jesus call this woman a dog? Uh, a, there are two different uh, things that I found. Now, one, the most obvious truth, and that's absolutely right, is that Jesus was actually giving her opportunity to demonstrate her faith. He wasn't just going to heal her and send her away. He wanted her to, he wanted her to demonstrate the faith that he found so prizeworthy and, and show his disciples, this is what it means to be a disciple of me. This is what I celebrate. Um, but beyond that, he still, he still called her a dog. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to say Jesus knew what she was going, how she was going to respond and it's another thing to say that Jesus knew what she would hear, right? Because uh, Jesus was the best communicator ever. Um, 
I mean, he didn't, you know, when I get up here, I don't really know how you're taking me and how you're responding to what I'm saying, honestly. You may think I'm just completely crazy. Um, but on the, on the other hand, Jesus was the best communicator ever. He, he knew exactly what people not only would do, but what they would hear. Uh, and there's a, for all of us that try to communicate to other people, we know that there's a huge gap between what we say, oftentimes, and what other people hear uh, in, in relationships and whatever. So what did she hear? Number one, you need to understand that the word dog here is only used in this particular instance in the New Testament. It's the only time this word ever appears in this particular story with Jesus. And the word that's translated dog was probably a better, better translated as puppy or household dog or household animal uh, as opposed to a wild and, ravaging, it was a wild and ravaging dog. It was much more uncommon back in that time for a dog to be a household pet. And Jesus was basically calling her the word they used for a household pet as opposed to the other one, which was more demeaning. That's one. And we understand how that works. Uh, if you understand how context affects the way a word sh- is, is different and how it's shaped. For example, uh, if I say uh, to a child, stop being so bad, you understand what the word bad means in that particular circumstance. But if I say, after Devin Hester scores a touchdown, man, that guy's so bad, you know, you, you understand the difference of context. You understand the word, the difference in the way that the word bad is used. Number one, context shapes the way a word is being meant and t- being intended to be used. So that's one thing. Number two, uh, tone also expresses quite a bit of what we mean. I could go up to a friend, let's say his name's Todd. I'll use Todd. If there's a Todd in here, you get to be my friend today. I could go, I could go up to Todd and say, Todd, you old devil, and smile at him. And Does he think I'm calling him a devil? No, he, he's, he knows that I'm calling him a term of affection. Or even use this word, dog. If I look at someone and say, you dog, uh, I'm saying something different than I would be saying if I went up to somebody and said, what's up, dog? Right? <laughs> you understand the difference that tone communicates. And it, all we know is that this woman received Jesus' tone very well. I don't know what D-A-W-U-G is in the Greek, but we... What, what we have uh, here is that that's basically what I came to. I, I came to the realization that Jesus uh, had to have communicated something to her that she received well. Jesus wasn't demeaning this woman. Uh, and what's cool uh, for me is that these gospel writers, they didn't remove a hard story so that people like me and you would find it easier to swallow. Uh, if, I were gonna, if I were going to manufacture a lie, I'd probably remove this story so that People like me wouldn't be bothered. What's cool is that I see that they were serious about preserving the life of Jesus Christ in an authentic and historical way. And that's cool to me. I appreciate that. I'm I'm fond of that particular action. But before I move on, remember, ultimately, Jesus, Jesus is showing us. He takes the curse of exclusion and brings embrace, and he prepares us for the great commission that he gives the disciples. Go, make disciples of all nations. That's curse number one. Uh, Curse number two, you'll find in verses 29 through 31. I'm going to read that as well. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing 
and they glorified the God of Israel. So, so Jesus has been in the regions of Tyre and Sidon. He heads south on the Sea of Galilee. He's going up to do his thing. And all it says is he sat down on a mountain. Uh, and then people just came to him. Uh, I, I don't even know what popularity like that looks like in our world. Like he just, I mean, I can think of a few people, LeBron James, maybe Princess Diana. You know, we're talking out of this world popularity, right? Um, Jesus has incredible popularity. People are just coming to him, and what they do is amazing. They, they come to him, and among this crowd, there are people that are crippled, that are lame, that are blind, that can't see. And the picture, a better picture of this is they almost are throwing the, the, the physically debilitated at Jesus' feet. And Jesus is getting ready to show us that the curse of affliction, he comes and he brings restoration. Where there's affliction, he brings restoration. Uh, and how he does it, how the, how the narrative points, uh, how the narrative tells us that Jesus did this, is it's very simple. It's in four words. It says this, and he healed them. And he healed them. Now, if you move through the Gospels really fast, you see Jesus doing a lot of healings, and it would be easy just to kind of keep plodding along. Oh, Jesus healed some more people. That's cool. Uh, but don't miss the beauty of how brief those four words are. And he healed them. He didn't, Matthew didn't say Jesus went abracadabra, uh, reparo, you know, be healed. You know, he didn't, he didn't have to stir up a pot, a potion, and, you know, rub it on people's hands and eyes and ears so they could see things. He didn't have, he didn't have to say, okay, jump over this line seven times. He, you see what I'm saying? Jesus just healed them. He just did it. it. For Jesus, giving a blind person sight and restoring hearing to a deaf person is as easy as pouring water is for us. Don't miss what Matthew is trying to tell you here. He's trying to show you that the God of the universe who created the eye is giving sight to the eyes again. The God of the universe that made the ear is returning hearing to our ears. Jesus has that power, and it's simple for him. And he healed them. It is amazing what Jesus did. Be blown away by that fact. So for now, I know, I know that there are some of you that even if, even if you've you know, been raised on, on, on the Bible and you understand uh, the story, you come across the story and you think, can this really be true? And it, for just one second, suspend your disbelief. And just with me right now, assume that this is real. And assume that you're, in, you, you're around this Jesus guy when people were claiming this sort of thing was happening. Jesus better become priority number one. Jesus better become priority number one. You know, like... Uh, find out who this Jesus guy is, uh, priority number one, uh, go to the market and uh, work on the fishing boat uh, in that order and number one being the most important. Jesus has to be the first priority in this story. If, I'm, if, if Jesus is healing all these people, I'm finding out what in the world is this guy saying about himself, what are other people saying about him, I'm finding out who this Jesus guy is fast and I'm going to make it the most immediate thing in my life. Now I'll return to your dis- disbelieving self and, and recognize that you still have the same predicament. Uh, you still have to figure out what you think about this Jesus guy. You still have to figure it out. Um, 
Now, you could look at this and say, oh, miracles don't happen, and this seems all made up, and this seems like this can never, ever, ever happen. Uh, or you could say, well, a lot of people claim it's true, and if a guy actually came, actually came and did this, then that changes the way that the world is. <laughs> it changes everything about the world, and I have, to, I have to address this. I have to think about what this means for me and for my life. So today, your priorities would be figure out who this Jesus guy is, Go to the grocery store, uh, put in the job proposal. Your life has to, your life situation, the way you see your life and even your priorities now has to shift. Uh, to make this clearer, I want to read a quote from N.T. Wright. He's a cool guy out of England that kind of sums up what I'm saying, I think, in a very powerful way. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. You, you can't live in the shallow world in between. If, if you claim that Christ is your king, then he can't simply be a tack-on to your week on Sunday mornings for an hour and a half. He can't simply be a, a tame God that you reserve for certain parts of your life. Uh, you know, I'll worship Jesus on Sundays, and I may, I'll read my Bible once a week, I may go to a small group, but it doesn't affect the way I work. It doesn't affect the way I treat my spouse or my children. It doesn't affect the way I talk about people. If Jesus is who he says he is, and who Matthew says he is, excuse me, it has to change everything. It has to change everything. And if you don't know what you think about Jesus yet, carve out some time this week and actually do some investigation. I can give you some resources. N.T. Wright is a, good, uh, is a good start, the resurrection of the Son of God. Find out what you actually think about this Jesus. It's really, really important. Uh, if you don't, you're, you're not getting the claims that Matthew is making and that Christians as a whole are making. Jesus must be God, and he must be reckoned with in an appropriate fashion. Who was he? What am I going to do with that? And when we see here, Jesus comes, he overturns affliction with restoration as if it were simple. As if it were simple. That's curse number two. Uh, curse number three, uh, Jesus feeds in Jesus feeds the 4,000, verses 32 to 39. It says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. 
So I want to make this story kind of shorter because actually uh, what's happened is this is the second time Jesus does something like this. Just a few chapters earlier, uh, he fed a crowd of 5,000 men, including women and children. So this crowd here has been with him for three days, and they haven't eaten anything. They're so consumed by Jesus, they stop eating for three days. So they get it, right? They get who Jesus is, and they get what they should do. They just drop everything, including eating, so that they can focus on this guy for three days. And Jesus, realizing this, has compassion on them and says, okay, disciples, we got to feed them. And the disciples uh, somehow forget the 5,000 uh, that they had just fed, and they're like, Jesus, what are we, how are we going to do this? This is a desolate place. Uh, we, there's no way that you can do this. And Jesus is like, okay, br- again, bring me, the, bring me the fish and the loaves. I don't know that how Jesus reacted. I really don't. But he, he, he's basically saying, let's do this again. Let's feed this crowd. And when he feeds them, uh, again, what's cool is that we find that they were satisfied and that there were leftovers. Curse number three is scarcity. And Jesus overcomes that with abundance. Jesus overcomes scarcity with abundance. Jesus is basically saying here, I can make something out of nothing. <laughs> I can make something out of nothing. Uh, whenever it seems like you, there's nothing at all here. When, when there are debt ceilings to be worried about, when there are financial crises in the world and across the globe, Jesus controls it all. He says, I can make money come out of nowhere. I can make bread come from nothing. There are no, there are no limits to my resources. Where there's scarcity, I can bring abundance. And what's cool is not only does Jesus satisfy them with this food, it says that there are leftovers. Now, um, my, my in-laws are here today, and uh, they, my, my mother-in-law in particular is an excellent Thai cook. She cooks Thai food uh, in ways that blows my mind. And uh, they... Unfortunately for them, they realize how much I like Thai food. And I, I honestly, a lot of times, will not eat when I know I'm going to go eat at their house so I can have as much Thai food as I possibly can because it's so good. And uh, one time over a meal, like I, you know, my mother in law just kept, and my father in law just kept, you know, making sure that I had food and I just kept eating and I kept eating. And eventually, you know, my wife Mason ex- explained to me, she said, you know, in our, in our culture, uh, when it's a very good sign that, you know, you eat and you eat and you eat and there's still something left over. And, and, and in many times, if you eat and there's nothing left over, uh, there'll be more food coming in just a bit. So uh, the, in, in, also in Jesus' culture, to provide food in such a way that there are leftovers and people to be satisfied is a tremendous compliment uh, to what Jesus did. Basically, they're saying, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is where the feast is at. If you want to know where to find a feast, follow this Jesus guy. He can provide it. He knows how to make sure that food is a plenty. And it was. They were satisfied and there were leftovers. There's no scarcity to Jesus. He can make, he can make something out of nothing. Where there is scarcity, Jesus brings abundance. And Jesus is showing the people, no matter what's up, where I am, I will care for you. I will take care of you, take care of you. I can, I'm able. Now we're uh, at the end of looking at these three curses that Jesus overturned, and I mentioned the song and I asked the question, can it be true? And I acknowledge the fact that, well, it's cool that you say all this, Jeremiah, but there's still, uh, you know, there's still a lot of racial animosity, there's still ethnic divisions in this world, there's still hatred for other people groups in the world. 
Uh, not to mention that, you know, there's still a lot of deaf people, blind people, cancer takes its hundreds of thousands every year. Heart disease takes its thousands and hundreds of thousands every year. Uh, disease still plagues the world, Jeremiah. Uh, and, and there's still a world of food storage. There are countries in this world where there isn't enough food for people. And, and there is scarcity, and we're finding that out right now, like I mentioned, uh, when we talk about the world economic crisis, whatever that means. I don't know. I'm, I, I, I preach. So, uh, I, you know, this is what I do. So, um, the question remains, if Jesus comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found, why does it seem like the curse is still there? And in other words... If Jesus did so many awesome things, why in the world would he go and, and get himself killed and leave the world so soon and, and leave us here to suffer and lead us here, leave us here to have so many difficulties? The answer, I think, and I, the Bible supports this uh, behind that, is Jesus came to destroy the curse behind all curses. Jesus' mission wasn't just to break the small curses in this world, but it in fact was to break the big curse that is behind all other small curses. That was Jesus' mission. And in fact, what we find uh, in the scriptures, the big curse is sin. Uh, Sin, in fact, uh, plagues all humanity. It plagues all of us. It is described as a state of being, a state of being in rebellion against our God and maker. It's not just revelry and murdery, murder and thievery. It's a state of sin. It's a state that you're in. And the scriptures go as far to describe people that are in sin as death, Psalm 115, as blind, John 1, as even dead, Ephesians 2. In many ways, the curses that we see here in these passages are, and the ones that Jesus cures so simply and fixes so simply are are really metaphors or, or symbols for the, the much greater curse of sin, the rebellion that we live in against our God and against our Maker. And Jesus, if he'd wanted to, he could have stayed and healed more people. He could have done that. But his mission was to go to the very core of who we are and fix the curse within us. He wanted to go to the very core of who we are and fix the curse within Jesus knew that we were blind and deaf and even dead spiritually. And he knew that the only way to fix the brokenness, the only way that he could do that, this, this one wouldn't come out by just laying his hands on someone. This had to come about by suffering a sacrifice for all the sin and evil that we've done. God had, because he was just and righteous, he has to punish evil and iniquity and rebellion. And Jesus decided, instead of leaving us in our dead state, in our blind state, in our deaf state, he decided to do the very thing he does here, intervene and pull us out. And he did that through suffering on the cross, where he bled and died on our behalf. Jesus offers us the opportunity, he offers us the opportunity to have him, to not only have physical blessings, but truly a more important blessing, and that is the spiritual blessing of forgiveness from God and new life. Jesus wants to give us life. He wants to give us real eyes. He wants to give us real ears. Jesus wants to fix 
our greatest problem. And the cross was how he did that. And not only that, Jesus knows that wherever there's rebellion, wherever there's rebellion against God, the curse will return. The curse will be there. Wherever there are people that are made to glorify and worship God and obey him, and we live in disobedience to that, the curse will be there. The curse will be there. Curses will be there. The curse exists in our world because of rebellion against God. And unless Jesus were to purify people and take them to a place where they would never be cursed, where that curse would never be present, the big curse, he couldn't eliminate all the small curses either. So Jesus didn't fail in his mission. Jesus' first mission when he came to this earth was to break the power of the ultimate curse, was to break the power of sin. Was to break the power of sin. And if we will but reorient our lives like we should and say, God, as opposed to being dead towards you, I want to be alive. I give you my life. I repent of walking away from you. I believe in you. We can now have abundant life. We can now have true life, true hearing, true uh, ability to see. Now, uh, to conclude... I wanted to let you know, I kind of started out with something, uh, started with the song, Joy to the World. Um, Joy to the World was actually written by a guy named Isaac Watts in the late 18th century. And the song had seven verses. We usually only sing four. Uh, I, and those, that seven-verse song was actually written not as a song about Christmas, but as a song about Jesus' second coming as a song about Jesus' second coming. Joy to the World isn't a song about, primarily about the manger, about Jesus' life and death, but primarily about what Jesus is going to do when he comes back and once and for all ends the power of the curse. All curses, no more let sin nor sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known, for as the curse is found. That is a promise that we still are longing for and waiting for. And the cross, the, the life of Jesus Christ and the cross make that song that we sing at Christmas, but the song that we were meant to be singing, looking towards the second coming of Jesus, possible. Isaac Watts wanted us to sing a song waiting for Jesus' coming. And I want to give you the first three verses of that song so you can look at it. I found this, uh, it's really cool. Princeton Theological Seminary has an online, hymn, bunch of all, like, all these hymnals online, and it's really cool. And I was able to find this. And uh, I'm going to show you the lyric, the first three verses of Joy to the World originally, and let that be how we conclude. It says, To our Almighty Maker God, new honors be addressed. His great salvation shines abroad and makes the nations blessed. He spoke the word to Abraham first. His, His truth fulfills the grace. The Gentiles make his name their trust. And learn his righteousness. Let the whole earth his love proclaim with all her different tongues and spread the honors of his name in melody and songs. And that's the response that you get to do today. Sing to your Savior. Sing to the Savior that breaks the power of the curse that will one day bring us to a place where the curse will never, ever touch us again. Sing to him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to 
look at your scriptures, to hear you speak, God, the fact that you want to talk to us, the fact that you want to communicate who you are to us, shows us that you want to live in relationship with us, God, and we're, we're humbled by that. And we're even more humbled that, Father, you did not want to leave us in a desperate situation where all sorts of curses are found. But, Father, you wanted to redeem us and bring us to a place where there's nothing but blessing. There's nothing but blessing. God, even now, prepare our hearts, prepare us, change us, cultivate us into the type of people who have a taste only for the home where blessings only are found. We pray these things in your name. Amen.